recognizing Jesus. You know, when they, when they came in, they thought they were recognizing their Messiah, but they were in for a bit of a surprise, and things had changed very quickly for them. We're, uh, we're in hockey playoff mode right now, and uh, the Jets are in with the St. Louis Blues, and every year they have what's called the NHL Draft, and so every year all 21 teams at that time, now it's over 30, they all line up 1 to 30, and they get to pick whatever player they want from the entire world to join their team. And that's the first round, and they go to the second round, and a third round, and Back in 1983, they had an NHL draft, and it goes down as one of the most missed opportunities in the history of our great sport. People thought they recognized talent, but they completely missed one of the greatest players in the history of the game. There's a foreign-born goaltender who entered into the draft, and so the first round goes through, and they go through all back in those days. It was only 21 teams. And 21 teams passed him over. I had all the experts, all the analysts figuring out who would be the best. And he says, no, that, that can't possibly be a good goaltender. So they went to the second round and the third round and the fourth round. And this guy eventually gets drafted in the 10th round, 199th overall. People had never heard of other people who went way further than this guy in the draft. So this guy gets drafted. And what happens in his career? Well, he goes on to be the best voter, the best goaltender in the NHL six years, called the Vesna. He was the best player overall, not just goaltender, but the overall most valuable player twice. That's called the Hart Trophy. And his, his team won the Stanley Cup twice. And before I give it away, he was the goaltender that beat out Team Canada in the semifinals, and they went on to win gold. That's none other than Dominic Hasek. And he goes down as the most missed opportunity in the history of the NHL. People who thought they recognized talent, but completely misunderstood who he was. He was so unorthodox the way that he played, ended up being the greatest, one of the greatest goalies in NHL history. Why do we bring that up? Triumphal entry is a story of people who thought they knew how to recognize the Messiah, but they passed him over. What happened? These were not bad people. They, they read their Bibles the way you and I did. They studied the scriptures. We're going to go through Old Testament and New Testament scriptures to show that these people really studied hard and wanted to keep their eyes open for who the Messiah was. Triumphal entry is a cool story because it's one of very few that show up in all four Gospels doesn't make them more important or less important. For example, John doesn't even talk about the virgin birth, doesn't even talk about the birth of Jesus at all. But it's a pretty elite group that the triumphal entry is part of. The baptism of Jesus is in there, feeding of the 5,000, triumphal entry we'll talk about today, the Last Supper, Peter's denial predicted when Jesus says, you're going to deny me three times, the prayer of Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane, the trials when Jesus is standing before Pilate, the crucifixion, the burial, and of course, the resurrection. So those are featured in all the different four Gospels. So why is there so much emphasis being placed on the triumphal entry? Well, there is huge expectation about Jesus being the Messiah because it's Passover time. That's what we're in right now. It's the Passover feast, and everyone's come to Jerusalem. Thousands and thousands of people are expecting him to be the Messiah. Why? Why Jesus? Why are they thinking that he's the one? Because others had come too claiming to be a Messiah. So why the focus on Jesus? 
All because he'd fulfilled so many prophecies. Jesus had fulfilled hundreds of prophecies, hundreds of prophecies in the Bible. And we'll look at just a few of them that Jesus fulfilled. There were seven that he did just in this little part coming into Jerusalem and, and during his birth and so forth. There are many, many more in the Bible, but let's just briefly look at seven so we can get our minds around what would have been like if you and I were not living here today, but what if we were back there in Jerusalem or even in Israel during the time of Christ? Why would you and I have assumed as people who'd read the scriptures, why, did, why would we have thought that Jesus was the Messiah? Well, prophecy number one, the Messiah will be born in Bethlehem. But you, O Bethlehem, Ephrathah, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me one who is to be ruler in Israel. And that's going to be an important thing for us to understand. The terms king and ruler, those are really big in the mindsets of people from Israel. Who's coming forth is from old, from ancient days. So that's fulfilled in Luke chapter 2. Joseph also went up to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. And while they were there, the time came for her to give birth. So that's a pretty big prophecy being fulfilled. He comes from the city of David. Jesus was born in Bethlehem, especially considering that Herod had all the babies two and under that were killed during that time. Pretty unique to have a guy Jesus' age who came from Bethlehem. Second, Messiah will be born of a virgin. Famous passage in Isaiah. Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. And that's fulfilled in Luke chapter 1. And the angel answered her, the Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. And this is later on where you hear that controversy where they say, wait a minute, isn't this the carpenter's son? There's people already there who don't believe him to be the Messiah, but others believe that he was born of a virgin. So we hear the word carpenter's son, we think the emphasis is on carpenter, but it's more on carpenter's son. He says, well, you have a dad like everybody else, so what's the difference? Uh, prophecy 3, the Messiah will be a prophet like Moses. That's going to come up later on. The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from your brothers. It is him you shall listen big indictment against the Pharisees who refused to listen to Christ. And that's fulfilled. Messiah would be a prophet like Moses. So in John 7, 40, when they heard these words, some of the people said, this really is the prophet. So you can see how people are starting to put all these different pieces together about who Jesus was. Messiah would speak in parables. Give ear, O my people, to my teaching. Incline your ears to the words of my mouth, I will open my mouth in a parable. I will utter dark sayings from of old. That's from Deuteronomy. And of course, that's many of the parables where Jesus speaks. They're highly symbolic. We talked about last week. All these things Jesus said to the crowds in parables. Indeed, he said nothing to them without a parable. This was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet. I will open my mouth in parables. I will utter what has been hidden since the foundation of the world. Five, the Messiah will perform miracles. So this prophecy was in Isaiah. You might uh, hear this from the Hanel's Messiah. Then the eyes of the blind shall be opened, the ears of the deaf unstopped. Then shall the lame man leap like a deer and the tongue of the mute sing for joy for waters break forth in the wilderness and streams in the desert. 
And that's fulfilled in Matthew 11, verses 2 to 6. I'll just read the first part. Now, when John heard in prison about the deeds of Christ, he sent word by his disciples and said, are you the one who is to come or shall we look for another? And Jesus goes back to the prophecy. That's the key. He goes back to the prophetic word given about him. And he says, go and tell John what you hear and see. The blind receive their sight, the lame walk, lepers are cleansed, and the deaf hear, and the dead are raised up. And that is signifying Lazarus's resurrection coming because that sealed the deal. That was it. We'll talk about that this morning, why Lazarus's resurrection was when the Pharisees went on an all conspiracy to get Jesus. And the dead are raised up, and the poor have the good news preached to them, and blessed is the one who does not, is not offended by me. Prophecy 6, and again, there's many more. We'll close off with just these two. The Messiah would draw Gentiles to himself. In that day, the root of Jesse, who shall stand as a signal for the peoples of him, shall the nations inquire, and his resting place shall be glorious. Pretty cool, because that's fulfilled in John 12, right after the passage we're talking about today. The reason why the crowd went to meet him was that they heard he had done this sign. Which sign? Raising Lazarus from the dead. So the Pharisees said to one another, you see that you are gaining nothing. And that's going to come up later on. We're going to see why they realized this is out of control. We can't get rid of Jesus. Look, the world has gone after him. Now among those who went out to worship at the feast were some Greeks. So they came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida in Galilee, and asked him, sir, we wish to see Jesus. So these and many, many more prophecies, especially this one, because today is the big day, Zechariah 9.9, this is the one that's famous for Palm Sunday. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. Righteous and having salvation is he, humble and mounted on a donkey. Not a horse, not a mule, but the lowliest of all animals, a donkey. And it's fulfilled in John chapter 12 where it says the next day a large crowd that had come to the feast heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. So they took branches of palm trees and went out to meet him, crying out, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Even the king of Israel, again, there's that phrase, and that's what's going to be their undoing here. And Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it. For it is written, fear not, daughter of Zion. Behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. So like we heard earlier today when Justina was talking about expectations, People have an expectation of Jesus. They're expecting him not just to come. They're expecting him to come in a particular way. And that proves to be the biggest challenge they're facing. The biggest one, of course, is especially after raising Lazarus from the dead. This set the Pharisees off. That was the end of the line for them. They knew if they didn't get him now, if a man can raise people from the dead, they have no chance. They find a cult. It was very cool if you, if you heard the scripture reading before that on the video. It was very coolly put together. The cult is tied up. I remember last week we talked about the importance of symbolism in the Bible. Every word of God is, of the Bible is breathed in. He, his word is tested. He is a shield to those who take refuge in him. So what does this story tell us? He's saying, go into this town. You're going to find a tied cold. The guy's going to tell you, what are you doing? You're going to say, the Lord needs it. He's going to say, okay. You're going to take it and bring it here. Why is that important? Why, why does he go through this little exercise? Because Jesus here is saying, not only am I sovereign over what just happened with the donkey, because nobody can say that. Imagine today if someone were to say to you, you know what? Go to the Ford dealership, and don't worry about a donkey. Go get a Ford Mustang. 
and just go to the front desk, grab a key, go pick yourself out the best Ford Mustang you like, convertible, hardtop, blue, red, whatever you want. Just go sit in there, start the engine, and if anybody comes and says, what are you doing? Just say, you know what? We need it for church. And the guy says, no problem, you got it. Right? Anything like that? That's not going to go over so well. But Jesus tells them to go and grab this donkey, and it happens exactly as he says. And it should bring back for them the story where they're in the boat, and it's all stormy, and Jesus calms the sea. And we sometimes think that that's the story of, well, whenever you've got a problem, just come to Jesus, and he's guaranteed to take it all away. But that's not what he's saying. He's saying, I have power over the wind and the waves. I have control over all of this. So he's saying, I am sovereign over your situation. I'm sovereign over your life. Even when the pieces don't seem to fit together, Jesus is saying, just the way I know this donkey thing is happening, I know what's going to happen to me. And don't worry, it's okay. Because if I know what's happening with a donkey, I know what's happening with my crucifixion and my resurrection. So he's trying to give them that sign. So Jesus is telling his disciples he's in control of what's about to happen. In the same way, he's in control of your life, even if at times things do not work out the way you think they are. Do I have faith that God is sovereign in my life? You feel like life has come undone and the pieces don't fit together? Were you expecting a Jesus that didn't deliver the way that you had hoped? They find a colt and the colt is tied up. That's not by accident, that's highly symbolic. What, does, what else can we learn about this donkey being tied up? Notice the donkey is tied up. It's released and brought into what? Into the service of Jesus. And Jesus sits on this donkey. They untie the colt. And that's a reminder for us that we are only free when we are serving Jesus. A donkey was freed to serve Christ. Can I ask the question this morning? Are you serving Jesus? I had a buddy of mine I ran into. We were friends when we were younger, and then you know how life works. Sometimes it takes you off in different places. And I ran into him maybe 10 years ago or so. I thought, oh, so good to see you again. And we connected, and I sent him messages, but he never responded back. And I saw him again a couple of years later and responded and sent him a message. Hey, you want to get together? Want to get together? Never would. Would just, you know, blow me off, blow me off. And I, I connected with him about four or five days ago. I asked him, you know, how, how are you doing? He goes, you know, I got to be honest. I, I was blowing you off because I was, I was in terrible bondage for the last 10 years of my life. Just, just awful. And it prevented me from getting together with all kinds of different Christians. And he says, what I found is that just by being in the Word, by loving Jesus, by having that as my greatest goal, got rid of all this bondage that I used to be in. And we sometimes think, you know, bondage can be addictions, and it can be, but we can be in bondage to many things. Unforgiveness, anger, jealousy, unmet expectations and despondence that comes with that. There's a lot of ways that we can be held in bondage. And the way that you and I become free from that is first to recognize how loved we are in Jesus. And second of all is to get into the service of Jesus. There's no way that we can stop doing a bad thing and be in neutral territory. You know, it's unfortunately one of the challenges is either we're serving Christ or we're, we're serving ourselves. It's not one or the other. You can't jump out of an airplane and not fall down. You can't be in midstream. It's, it's one or the other. And so this, this, this story with my friend was a real reminder to me that the only way out of bondage is to become passionate 
about Jesus. A missionary friend of mine once said something I hope I never forget. It was just five simple words, and she's a very quiet person. And she said, remember, life with Jesus is better. And I love that. I just, I, that, that encapsulates it right there. It's a better quality of life. Not always the best circumstances, but a better quality. Turn to me and be saved, all the ends of the earth, for I am God and there is no other. Isaiah 45, 22. And this is how we can be free from bondage. Now, what's the significance of a colt, of a, of a donkey? You know, that's kind of an interesting uh, animal to have. A horse, of course, symbolized war. Kings came on horses. If they were coming to attack, that was, you know, I'm coming as a sign of power. King David rode on a mule, and we think mule and donkey are the same thing, but they're not. Mule are the big, strong power animals. And here Jesus goes even lower, and he, he goes on to a donkey. This donkey is just a tiny, tiny little thing, and he's sitting on that. What, why does he use a donkey? Because Jesus comes in peace. He's not coming to come with thrusts of a sword or anger. He comes to you and me in peace. Comes to us with gentleness and kindness. You know, one of the greatest obstacles to overcome in in sharing the gospel with someone is this belief that God is somehow angry with us and is disappointed in us. But read how he comes into Jerusalem. He comes quietly with a humble heart, gentle. That's how God comes to us this morning. He loves you. He's passionate about you. You're on God's mind all the time. You know that Willie Nelson song, You Are Always On My Mind? You are always on God's mind. He loves you. He thinks about you all the time. Peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. So here's a question that we should ask ourselves. Do we come in peace to people around us? Not only does Jesus come to us in peace, but if we've surrendered our lives to Christ and accepted the death of Jesus Christ, on the cross for our sins. Not of works that any of us can boast, but just by faith in Jesus. Do we come to others around us in peace? When people hear that that guy's coming to a meeting or this person's coming to this event, do they think that, oh, that's a peaceful person. That's a person who's nice to be around, loving, kind, and gentle. There's two groups of people, and we heard them. There's the Pharisees and there's the supporters. And Jesus talks about, well, the Pharisees, you read in the scripture passage this morning, you know, they say, tell your disciples to, to shut up. I don't want to hear these guys. And Jesus says, well, if they don't, then the rocks will cry out. And the, the symbolism there, it's a, it's a massive insult. What he's saying is, not only do you Pharisees not know what's going on, but these rocks are smarter than you are about knowing what's happening here. And they, they didn't get it. And this just infuriates and inflames them so much more. But the supporters come saying, Hosanna, with palm branches. They're ready to bring their king in. But what kind of a king are they hoping for? Why didn't the Pharisees recognize Jesus? What was their central problem? I mean, for all they know, maybe this guy is going to come in and kick out the Romans, right? Bonus, and put them in charge. But they don't. Why not? Because they were only willing to endorse someone who would approve their hypocrisy and power. They're looking for somebody who's going to affirm them in their position. Not somebody who's going to challenge them in their position. And that was a recipe for disaster for them. 
So why do the supporters believe him? Why are they shouting Hosanna? Well, because they saw all those seven messianic and many other prophecies fulfilled. And they think, hey, this is the guy. Looks pretty good. Well, like we talked about, they are making a massive, disastrous assumption about the word king. You heard these prophecies, ruler of Israel, king, like King David. And you know, can, can we really blame them? I mean, if you and I would have been reading our Bibles faithfully at that time, would we necessarily have thought something different? Think about the word king. We know about King David. What did King David do? He was a slingshot guy, right? He was 8 or 10 or 12. He was a, he was a kid. He was a little guy. And he throws this rock and kills Goliath. And if you and I would have been Jews at that time, we would have grown up with this story. And he killed Goliath. And King David killed lots of people. He was a militant, amazing, the best military commander. So you think, this, if we're going to bring a king in, he's got to be the same one. They think they're getting a political king. But Jesus came up to set up a spiritual kingdom. And that's where they're talking past each other. They're hearing words but not understanding what Jesus is saying. He came not to rule politically, but to rule in our hearts. And this is where the expectations are going to start to fall off. They're hoping for something that's not going to come. But he can't rule in their hearts yet. Why not? Because a triumphal entry is not political. It's signifying the triumph that's going to be happening over sin in our lives. They haven't made that connection yet. So what happens? What happens? What does Jesus do after he enters? Do you remember what happens? You know, before I was studying this path, I always assumed he, he went to the, the temple and cleansed the temple. Does, does he immediately go there? But he doesn't. He doesn't go there. In Mark 11, 11, it says, and he entered Jerusalem just like we thought he would, but he went into the temple, and when he had looked around at everything, it was already late, he went out to Bethany, with the 12. And he comes back the next day and cleanses the temple. You know, we read in, in, the, in the Gospel of John where he enters the triumphal entry and right after that he cleanses the temple. And we assume they happen right after each other, but it doesn't. It's no different than if you say, we were in church today and we watched the Jets game afterwards. But it doesn't mean that it happened right afterwards. It means it happened at some point afterwards. So the scriptures are still uh, homogenous. They still work together perfectly. But he goes in and Right now, you, people are starting to think, wait a minute, this, this is not a king. It's not the kind of king. What's he doing? He's looking into the temple. And we know that the temple today is us. First Corinthians talks about that, that our body is the temple of the Holy Spirit. And so Jesus comes in looking at the temple. That's symbolic of him looking into our hearts. Am I willing to take time to allow Jesus to look into my heart. I want to take time to look into Jesus' heart and to have him look into my heart. Are there hurts there? Are there disappointments there? Are there joys there? Are there potentially misunderstandings there where you're assuming something, where I'm assuming something about Jesus that's not the same way? Are we, are we any different than those who were there during that time? So what happens next? What happens afterwards? They get their swords together, and they go and fight all the Romans. Supporters become disillusioned. When? We're not sure. Maybe when Jesus comes in and looks at the temple, that would have been anticlimactic. When Jesus cleansed the temple instead of the Romans, yeah, hey, there's some fight happening now. This is going good. But at some point, they realize 
this guy is not who we thought. This, we're going to let this Hashek go in the 10th round. This guy's, this guy's not performing. We do know that at some point the supporters became fractured. So remember, we had the Pharisees who hate his guts, and we had the supporters. But now this supporters group, they're becoming fractured too because some of them are siding with the Pharisees. They're siding over with the Pharisees. So the supporters group are now fractured. Some are staying faithful, and some are going over to the Pharisees. The word crowd that supported him with palms is not necessarily the same crowd that shouted crucify him. We assume that there's a 100% shift over. Let me explain what I mean. If uh, you only have the whiteout now and you have the jets, so there's 15,000 people that fit inside the MTS area and about 7,500 on the street, maybe more. There's 22,000. The crowd at the Jets game is 22,500. But if I say to you there's a crowd at the Bomber Stadium, you may not think that we could pretend that that's the same group, but it's probably not. Some Jets fans are Bomber fans, but not all of them. So when we hear the word crowd, we've heard it twice, and we're making the assumption that crowd here means crowd there, that it's a 100% shift. Not necessarily. Not necessarily, because we know that Jesus had supporters, marry one of them, right to the end. So the Pharisees said to one another, you see that you are gaining nothing. Look, the world has gone after him. What's the problem? What's the big deal? Gaining nothing by what? What were they doing? Well, the whole time, they're trying to discredit Jesus because they realize their power is being sucked away from them. And so now they've got to figure out a way how to get rid of them. So they try to discredit him. That's why all these different conversations Jesus has during the Gospels with them, they're trying to discredit him to get rid of him so they can keep their nice positions of power because they feel it being sucked away. And Lazarus gets raised from the dead, and that was the beginning event for them. And they could see what was happening. Look, all your plans of trying to discredit him, they're not working. So implied in this is the massive conspiracy now to try and kill Jesus. That's where it happens. The triumphal entry sealed Jesus' fate, which you and I, by providence, actually needed for the forgiveness of our sins. Pharisees tried many ways to shut Jesus down, but it didn't work. So they try and turn the crowd against them. They try and get the crowd over, and some of those supporters did come over for two reasons. Jesus didn't quite look the way he was supposed to, and the Pharisees now are yanking them over to their side. They don't. Their power is gone. Many are disappointed in Jesus. He just didn't, didn't deliver the way they thought he was. That's heartbreaking. Expecting a political king who appears now to not be what they hoped. The triumphal entry is really anticlimactic for them. Can I ask you a question this morning? Have you been disappointed with Jesus? Is there a relationship you were hoping for that didn't pan out the way you wanted it to? Is there a job opportunity you were hoping for that didn't work? Is there a health condition that hasn't worked out the way that you'd hoped it would? Is there something that you wish would have happened either in your life or the life of somebody else and it didn't pan out? This is a normal experience in Christianity. We have this hope and and desire for things in our lives and other people's lives around us. And they don't happen. So, So what do we do? What is the answer? We go back to the donkey. It's a donkey show. What do we learn from that donkey? That God is sovereign over our lives. 
even in those times we think for sure he's forgotten about us. For sure this has now gotten so screwed up that we can't get back on track. That even then God is sovereign over this. Are we willing to come to God and to allow God to take away things we think are him so we can recognize him and see him more clearly? Are we willing to lay those things down at the cross and allow him to use those disappointments for his glory? Even when the People during his time didn't recognize him. When we are disappointed in Jesus, we can either jettison our faith or trust in a sovereign God. And that's where faith comes in. Very easy to believe when Jesus meets expectations. Easy to follow him if he were to get the Romans out and fight them and boot them up. That would have been easy. Hard to follow with the Jesus. And you think, well, those guys didn't recognize it. And they didn't. But you know, is it any different in our life? Are we hoping for a particular Jesus a certain way? God can still work massive things in our lives, and he's still working things out, especially when things don't look the way we hoped they would. I'm not big into a chapter and verse symbolism. I believe that the symbolism stays with the actual text. I just find it interesting that it's John 666 where this comes up. John 6, verse 66, after this, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. Because they didn't love him. They were hoping for what he could do for them. It's two different things. I want to close off with a, a passage. One of my all-time favorites. It's, it encompasses everything we've talked about here this morning. It's on the road to Emmaus. This is after Jesus has resurrected. Of course, there's no mass media at that time, so the word hasn't super gotten out yet, but it's gotten out enough. It says that very day, two of them were going to a village named Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem. And they were talking with each other about these things that had happened. While they were talking and discussing together, Jesus himself drew near and went with them. But their eyes were kept from recognizing him. And he said to them, what is this conversation you are holding with each other as you walk? As they stood still, looking sad, disappointed people. Then one of them named Cleopas answered him, Are you the only visitor to Jerusalem who does not know the things that have happened in these days? And he said to them, what things? Notice he doesn't say no, because no one would be lying, right? He just asks, what things? And they said to him, concerning Jesus of Nazareth, a man who was a prophet, mighty in deed. Remember that? We talked about that as one of the prophecies. He was mighty in deed. He was a prophet and in word. He'd spoken parables before God and All the people. Remember, Jesus was going to be speaking to the Gentiles. So just in one verse, those guys knew four prophecies about Jesus and how our chief priests and rulers delivered him up to be condemned to death and crucified him. But we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. How does Jesus respond? Oh, foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe all the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and the prophets, he interpreted to them all the scriptures and the things concerning himself. So what do we learn from that story? <clears throat> Sorry. Number one, that Jesus is sovereign. That donkey is an important part of this story. Jesus is sovereign over your situation and my situation in life. Number two, the donkey was tied up. Am I serving Jesus or am I staying in bondage? We have one or the other. Can't go halfway. 
Am I willing to love and serve Jesus, to be in his kingdom, to love him, to read his word, to serve him? Jesus comes into the temple. Am I allowing Jesus to search my heart, to check where maybe am I off in my expectations and assumptions about Jesus? Or am I willing to submit to him and recognize and say, Lord, you've got a bigger plan. Because had the triumphal entry worked the way that they wished it would have worked, God's kingdom would not have been built. That's a hard lesson for us to learn. That's tough, but it's real. Are we crucifying him or staying faithful when life does not work the way we want it to? All of us have expectations. I do. When they don't happen, what's our response? Solid followers of Jesus will bypass, I must understand, to I am willing to have faith. That's the real mark of a true disciple to Jesus. And last, the road to Emmaus, they stayed with Jesus even though they did not understand their circumstances. Pray that during this Palm Sunday season that we would be encouraged in Christ, encouraged that he fulfilled prophecy, that he's in control of all things, and that we can shout Hosanna when we know him to allow him to be who he is instead of who we want him to be. And that will guide us down the path that God has chosen for us. May be blessed and encouraged.